Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Lisa here. I just want to thank you for supporting my podcast and being a loyal listener. I am so grateful to you. To show my gratitude, I am now offering 15% off at my online store. Visit me at lisacongdon.com to shop colorful archival art prints, stationery, desk accessories, home goods, and more, all at 15% off with code PODCAST15 at checkout. That's right. Get 15% off of all of our products at lisacongdon.com with code PODCAST15 at checkout. Link to the shop in the show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 33 of the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I'm so thrilled to share with you my interview with Serena Bishop-Gordon. For those of you who don't know Serena, she is a professional endurance cyclist, an advocate for women cycling, and she is also my friend, mentor, and cycling coach. As an endurance cyclist, Serena trains for and perseveres through very hard, painful technical bike races, including Cape Epic, the hardest, most grueling mountain bike race in the world, where just this past year, she and her riding partner placed in the top 10. Endurance cycling and racing require an enormous level of discipline and mental strength. And one of Serena's superpowers is her mindset, which is keenly focused on growth and seeing difficulty as opportunity. We'll talk about that a little bit in the podcast today. Serena is also incredibly generous with her time and energy, which she funnels into encouraging other women, women of all levels and abilities and ages to get on bikes and challenge themselves. Serena has been racing professionally for more than a decade, specializing in gravel and mountain bike racing. She finished in second place twice at the Oregon Trail Gravel Grinder, which is the five day stage race that is super hard. And I can speak from experience because I did it twice myself, taking two stage wins in 2021 and was among the top female pros at Firecracker 50 and Leadville 100 in 2021. She even took the overall win, beating all the men at this year's Ochoco Roubaix. She has been on the podium at Rebecca's private Idaho Queen Stage race, Lost and Found Gravel, the Rad Dirt Fest, Carson City Off-Road, Marathon Mountain Bike Nationals, and countless other races. Serena also has a, quote, regular job as sustainability director at Visit Bend in the mountain city of Bend, Oregon, the place she and her husband, Ben, have called home since 2006. She is also a coach and co-founder of Special Blend Gravel, a gravel camp which helps women take their gravel riding and racing to the next level. Serena and I both raced in the Oregon Trail Gravel Grinder in 2021, and though we never met there, she reached out to me after the race and said, let's be friends and collaborate. From there, our friendship, collaborations, and now coach-coachee relationship have all flourished. Serena didn't get on a bike until she was 30 years old, and now at nearly 44, she is an elite cyclist at an age when most women have long been retired. 
This, along with her positive spirit, humility, and perspective, are incredibly inspiring to me, and I know they will be to you too. Today, we talk about managing the ego, not comparing ourselves to others, keeping our eyes focused on our own journey, and connecting to the why inside of our motivations. Let's welcome Serena to the show. Serena, I am so incredibly happy to have you on the podcast today. As I mentioned in your introduction, you are a professional endurance cyclist, an advocate for women cycling, and you also happen to be my cycling coach. And I'm so excited to have you here because you are someone with so much wisdom, not just because you're someone who trains for and perseveres through very hard, painful technical bike races, which require so much discipline and mental strength, but also because you embody, in my mind, the spirit of really encouraging other women to be their best in this sport that you love. And you could easily, you know, hoard your knowledge and skill, but you share it freely. And I can speak from personal experience that you are literally changing lives. So one of your superpowers is your mindset, which is really focused on growth and seeing difficulty as opportunity. And we're gonna dive into that a little bit today. And I'm just really grateful to be in your orbit. So I'm just really glad that you're here. And I wanted to say that while you and I are both athletes and we're going to talk about cycling a bit today, there is so much about your wisdom that transcends bikes and carries so much value in the rest of life, including in creativity and entrepreneurship. And so I'm going to say this to my non-cyclist athlete listeners, hang on, because we're gonna dive into some really interesting stuff today that I think we can all learn from, regardless of whether you're an athlete or not. A little later, we're gonna focus our conversation on managing the ego. We all have egos and they get in the way of our ability to feel joy and to persevere and to be vulnerable, frankly. And managing our egos is something that you and I talk about a lot in our friendship and coaching relationship because it's something that I struggle with. And we'll get into this a little bit more later, but I'm going through some life changes that are making it, you know, this managing my ego sort of omnipresent, this struggle um, with my ego. So I'm excited to dive into that topic today. So before we get to that, I want to start by asking you to go back to your childhood and tell the story of how you came to do the thing you're known for today, which in your case is endurance cycling. So take us back. Wow, Lisa, thank you so much. I'm, I, I just want to pause and say how honored and humbled I am to be talking with you today and being asked to be on your podcast. So thank you for having me. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. You're welcome. My pleasure. Wow. I I am a little bit teary-eyed after that introduction. Thank you. No, it's wonderful. Yeah. Endurance cycling and being an elite athlete was never something that I had planned in my life plan when I wrote it down at age 16. I wanted to do 
mergers and acquisitions on Wall Street. And lots of twists and turns have led me down a different path. However, as a child, I grew up with one younger sister, two years younger than I am. And she and I were just always out and about playing in the woods. We very, very seldom spent time in in the house and didn't watch television. We were just like really active children and were given a lot of freedom to explore and adventure. And so I just was a very active kid. My first bike was a, a blue banana seat bike, which I rode what I thought was quite a long distance to my elementary school. But um, a number of years ago, I revisited this particular route and realized it was less than one mile. And the giant <laughs> the giant hill was about 2%, I think. But then my family, I grew up in very northern, northern California. We moved to Oregon when I was in middle school and I started running on the track team. And just had a lot of fun through middle school. And then I ran in high school. And I think something that a lot of us struggle with is body image and relationship with food and struggled a lot with, yeah, just wanting to be skinnier and using sport as a way to lose weight. And when you're like 16, 17 years old, you don't really need to do that. You just need to be an active kid. And so really struggled with that through high school and into college. I ran for the University of Portland on the cross-country team for two seasons. And then as I as I graduated from college and started running longer distance, my relationship with training and with fueling changed a lot because I realized if I wanted to do something for more than like 40 minutes, I actually had to fuel myself and I wanted to be stronger. And um, so it's just a runner for a long time. And I was into ultra running before ultra running was cool. So tell us a little bit about what ultra running is for those people who don't know. Yeah, that's a great question. Ultra running is anything over the marathon distance of just 26.2 miles. And so when I got into ultra running, all the other people that were into ultra running were in their 40s and 50s. And it was sort of a, well, it was very much a niche sport. It's still a niche sport, but then so much more. And so I was running distances anywhere from 50 kilometers to 100 kilometers. I think the longest race I did was 80 some miles on foot. And it taught me a lot about moving through space and also made me realize how connected my physical activity was to my mental health. And then as we do, we meet partners, we have life changes. And I ended up in Bend, Oregon, which is where I live now. And at that time, the running community was, the community itself was a lot smaller and the running community was almost non-existent. And I didn't really find any people to run with. And I missed that community having lived in Portland, Oregon prior, which has a very strong running community. And a friend of mine said, you should do a cycle cross race, which is a type of bike racing. And I said, I have no idea what that is. And she's like, oh, well, you're a good runner. So you'll like it. And for those of you who don't know what cycle cross is, it's a lap race format takes somewhere between 40 and 60 minutes per race. And there's a lot of jumping on and off your bike, running up really steep hills, running over hurdles, and it's incredibly addictive. And the community of people that I met was just incredibly welcoming and sort of brought me in. I had I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't own a chamois, which is like a padded bike short that if you're a cyclist, you just, you know. And yeah, I remember walking to our local bike shop and they were like, do you want to be on our team? And I was like, okay. And they sold me my first chamois. And, and then I just slowly acquired bike disease which is something there's really no cure for. And um, that's sort of how I started riding bikes. And how old were you when you first started riding cyclocross? I was 30. 
And I I just want to give some context. You're about to turn 44, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I always love to tell the story of how when I was 30, I also got bike disease. And I thought to myself, like, I really love this. Maybe I can join the team or hire a coach because I don't know how good I could be, but like, I want to see. And I remember my next thought was, I'm too old. Because in my mind, you did these things when you were like 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. And so I love that you did it and that it led to something and that even if you had those voices in your head, they weren't strong enough. I also think that the cycling community now or even in the last 10 years is a lot different than it was when I was 30, which was like 25 years ago. I think if if I were 30 now, I probably wouldn't necessarily think I was too old, right? But at the time, the stories that women and men told about women in athletics was, you know, like, you are 30, you are over the hill to accomplish anything of note. And so I love that you're, you either started at the right time or for whatever reason had no expectations and were just sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this because it's fun. And that, and that you were 30, which in the grand scheme of things is not old, even in athletics. I actually have gotten to know just by listening to podcasts and watching cycling, the ages of some of the women who rode in the recent Women's Tour de France. And some of them had only been riding a bike for like a couple of years and were actually like in their 30s when they got on a bike for the first time. And it's just really amazing to me that you can discover a sport in your 30s and become elite. You know, obviously you have to work hard and have some physiology that agrees with that sport, but it's still super impressive to me. So you started cyclocross when you were 30. And so did you get into road cycling or crits or anything like that before you got into mountain or gravel cycling? So... I realized I was racing cyclocross and I thought, this is really fun. I should probably become a better cyclist. So I did spend a little bit of time trying to race on the road, was able to race some, you know, relatively large road stage races and was, was part of an accident, a crash. I was not severely injured. However, I saw a number of other women who were severely injured and I thought, yep, that's okay. I'm done with that. Like check that box, not where I want to invest time and energy. And I started mountain biking. Meanwhile, I was also riding my cyclocross bike on gravel roads because of where we live in Bend. It's just really fun and lots of good training opportunities. And also cyclocross is like on either gravel or dirt or mud or sand anyway, right? Exactly. Right. Off-road. So I really just started riding off-road a lot. And I think it's interesting that gravel is this like new emerging thing. And it is, except that we've been doing it for a long time. It just didn't have that name because we were just doing it on bikes that didn't have the same kind of brakes or the same width of tires because now bikes are being made specifically for gravel. So I really went from cyclocross to road to mountain biking and fell in love with with mountain biking. And I was petrified of going downhill. I just said, all the races should just be uphill. Because I had a really strong engine, but I didn't have any of the skills required to be competitive on the on the downhills. And as I advanced in my 
own like skills and asked for a lot of help and practiced a lot, I started enjoying the downhills and then realizing, oh, this is so much more fun when you aren't like afraid you're going to die and you can have a good time going downhill. And those skills obviously translated into cyclocross and then into gravel as that became more of a racing discipline versus just a training discipline. What was it like for you to go from somebody who enters a sport? I mean, you were obviously an accomplished ultra runner and you're familiar with what it feels like to train and to push your body and to, you know, to go into the pain cave. But what was it like for you to pick up a new sport and then find out within a couple of years that you were actually like really good at it? Like you could become a professional at a sport that you just started. Like, how did your mind wrap around that? That's, it's interesting to think back to that time because there were no expectations. I just started racing and then I won national championship mountain bike in my age group. And that was when things sort of changed. Like, oh, now I can get my pro license and now I can do pro level races. And I thought, I think back to some of the first pro level mountain bike races I did. And I remember driving to Missoula, Montana for a pro XCT, which is a mountain bike format race. And at that point, that series was the most elite in the country. And I pretty much thought I was going to win. Like, I'm so, I can't imagine that someone is going to be faster than me. And of course, I ended up being like almost last. And it was a huge eye opening experience. And I think that's when I realized, oh, okay, this is what it's going to take. Like, before that, it had been a very natural progression and development and not a, oh, I really, really want this and I'm willing to put the time and energy required. So while it definitely hurt my ego, it was also, it was awesome. because like, oh, I'm outside of my bubble and I want to compete at this level. And now I need to understand what that takes. That's interesting because I can imagine that would have been hard for your ego. You had the confidence of a young person who's like won an age group event, right? Like, oh, I'm good at this. And then you go to this pro level and you realize, oh man, there's a million people who are like faster than me. But instead of letting that defeat you and saying, oh no, I can't do this. Actually, it was like the fire under your butt, right? You wanted to get better. Mm-hmm. I feel like the ego can be a very useful tool in that way if you treat it like motivation. Yeah, I think that comes back to like the growth versus fixed mindset. If you have a fixed mindset, you're like, this is as good as I am. Oh, I'm not good enough. Okay, stop. Let's not pursue this further versus a growth mindset. It's like, okay, I obviously have some talent or base level, but I have so much more to learn and grow. And I I think that that's something that if we can have growth mindsets in all different aspects of our lives, we can continue to challenge ourselves and not look at it as failure, but opportunities to improve or to grow or to develop depending on what aspect of life you're looking at. So what changed for you after that? You do this, you come in last. I mean, obviously your mindset changed, but Did you sort of ramp up your training, seek out coaching? What changed for you? Um, Both of those things. Definitely realized that the training that I needed to do, the time that I needed to spend on the bike and the focus that I needed to bring to it had to change and increase. I also started reaching out to other people in the sport. 
And I remember a few people in particular at that race who I was like, oh, you know what you're doing. I should befriend you and ask for ask for advice and and talk to you about your experience as a elite pro level racer and what that looks like. And my husband Ben was at that event as well. And I think he saw how crushing it was, but also recognized that if this was something I wanted to pursue, I needed the time and space to do it. And he was supportive. So his support was really impactful as well. So I hired a coach. I started working on skills and was just a bit more focused. And during that time, I also joined a team. I made some changes at work. I really, I think I was at a point where I said, okay, I have a window here and I can see what I can do. And let's, let's give it a shot. I also recognized that I was a lot better, naturally better at the longer races. So also saying, okay, these are where my strengths and weaknesses are. How can I capitalize on those to have success? And so I began to shift into longer races away from the super short punchy ones and started having, but which is interesting because cyclocross is a very short race and I had a lot of success there. It was this weird 90 minute race that was more challenging for me. So yeah. And then sort of simultaneously pursuing the mountain bike on the elite level, I was also trying to do the same with cyclocross. And so that is also, you know, a challenge given the duration of season because mountain biking tends to be a spring and summer sport, whereas cyclocross is more of a fall sport. So juggling those two things and some seasons prioritizing one or the other. And you don't race cyclocross anymore. No, sort of unintentionally. <laughs> COVID happened, which obviously put a pause on cross. And then at the same time, gravel racing was really ramping up and that season was elongating and I just drifted that direction. So I haven't raced cycle cross since 2019, but I have been missing it just a little bit. Hmm. So what is it about endurance? You, you mentioned that you, you learned in all of this exploration that you were doing that, that you enjoyed and were good at the longer races. So what is it about endurance running, which you had previously done and endurance cycling that appealed to you? And um, so let's start there. I have some other questions about that, but like, what is it, what is it about the longer distance that, because I think a lot of people are like, oh, riding your bike for, and like, you know, I consider myself an endurance cyclist because I don't, you know, I like to do longer things also. And people's reaction is usually like, oh my God. Right. But for me, I actually prefer it sometimes. And I'm just curious why it's appealing to you, aside from the fact that you're good at it. Yeah. So it's interesting that you asked that question because I've been doing a lot of reflecting on that exact question as of late. And I don't think that when I was making that transition or identifying that I liked the longer distance, I, I had this insight. But looking back, right, you can say, why did I like that? I love spending time outside and moving through space under my own power. I also really like doing hard things. I like challenging myself. I like the progressive nature of going harder, going faster, going longer, and building upon that and doing the things that I didn't think I could do. And so those were all pieces that I think contributed to my desire to do more endurance, longer events. I also love the bicycle allows us to cover so much ground and to visit and see places at a speed that 
is fast enough to move quickly, but slow enough that we can take it in and let us go places that in an automobile we couldn't go. And also on foot, we couldn't cover that much ground in a day for most people. And so there were a lot of those elements. I also think the space that your mind goes to when you are on your bike for six hours or seven hours or eight hours is so unique. And you can, I mean, maybe with some sort of drug you could get there, but you can't, for me, I can't just get there by meditating or thinking, oh, I want to get to that state where everything is just flowing and time sort of evaporates and you're just doing the thing that you've trained your body to do. And it is really hard, but it is also so comforting in that, yep, this is right where I need to be right at this moment. But all the while staying quite focused and determined because when you're doing a hundred mile mountain bike race, you have to be in that flow because if you're pushing against yourself or over trying you'll become exhausted. Yet you also have to stay really focused and continue to push for the entirety of the race or the person behind you will catch you. And so that balance of finding the flow while also continuing to push really hard is a delicate balance. And I think that idea of flow state where sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't is really where those two things collide. It's like, okay, you're just doing the thing that you've trained yourself to do. And you're also doing it at a level where you're you're suffering, but you've accepted that suffering. Yeah. I heard this interview. I can't remember her name, but Rich Roll interviewed this woman on his podcast, who's an ultra runner. And she talks about the pain cave and that- Courtney DeWalter. Yes. Courtney DeWalter. Yeah. And her pain cave, she visualizes it. She's like expanding it in her mind. And like when she's in that space where she's feeling pain or discomfort, she visualizes the pain cave expanding, like getting bigger, and there's more spaciousness around it and more room for the pain. And she she tells herself, this is exactly where you need to be. And it was on an episode about mindset. And because they were talking about how, you know, mindset is so important. I mean, obviously you have to train and action is super important and you can't mindset your way through a bike race. But you know, especially if you've never been on a bike or trained. But apparently I also learned in that episode or somewhere, I think it was on the Ritual podcast, which I love, that we can go 40% further than we actually think we can when we're, when we think we're done, like that we can't do anymore. And I found that so fascinating. It's like, yes, this is hard and it's difficult and it's painful, but it doesn't mean that I can't keep going. Serena, what does cycling give to you? I think in general, our lives are really easy. We can turn on the heat if we're cold. We can turn on the air conditioning if we're hot. We don't give ourselves opportunities to really push outside our comfort zone very often. And I also think we just have lots of noise all the time. And when you ride a bike, whether it be in a race scenario or in a training scenario, or just because you want to go ride, you're doing something that is hard. You are often uncomfortable and you have to continue to move forward in that uncomfortableness. And sitting there, whether it be you're physically uncomfortable because you're racing and it's 80 miles into a 100-mile race and you're just tired, or if it's, I am all by myself out here and I am processing something that is a really difficult topic for me, that's also uncomfortable. But you put yourself in that situation because you want to push through and you want to get to the other side. And when you cross the finish line or you get home, and tears are running down your face because you just spent four hours thinking about all of the things that have been weighing on your shoulders, you come out of that feeling as a changed person. And that's 
you know, you just go out and do a, do a hard workout. You come back and you're like, I did that. That can create change. Or you can have like these really emotional or really physical experiences that also create change. But every time you get on your bike, you're changing yourself as a person and you're evolving as a person. And I think sometimes we think only the hard workouts can be changing. And I think that's not true because often the easy rides can be difficult because, okay, I need to actually just chill out. But then also when you aren't focused on doing the hard thing on the bike, you can do the hard things in your mind. So I think what cycling has given me is the ability to be a better person in all the other aspects of my life and also to learn that the lessons that we teach ourselves on the bike are applicable in every other part of our lives. Yeah. I mean, I can relate to that so much. I have been riding a bike since I was 30 and I did a couple like hard events when I was 30. And then again, when I was in my early forties, but it's not really been until the last five years that I've started really doing legit endurance events and training. And when you're able to push your body to that extreme and survive and actually thrive, I kind of feel, I don't necessarily feel invincible, but it's like, if I could do that, I can do anything. Right. And so it's been this kind of equalizer in my life. Like I can do hard things and that applies to having hard conversations with people and doing things in my professional life and in my personal life that feel hard and uncomfortable. Like the more comfortable you get being uncomfortable, whether it's physically or mentally, the better at it you get. It's just a muscle that you have to work. Like being uncomfortable is actually a really, really important skill in life. And we avoid it like the plague. And I I think endurance athletics teaches us to sit with discomfort because you can't escape it, you know? Yeah. And so for me, I think the significance of you being a professional, you know, on the professional racing circuit at, at almost 44 years old is also huge yeah, and hugely inspirational to me, given how painful it is. So talk about what that means for you. I think I never planned to be an elite professional cyclist. It just happened. And it's such a gift. It's provided me with so many opportunities in my life. And now being almost 44 and still being competitive, I think it shows one, just the strength of being a female. Like we're still out there. We're still battling. We're still getting stronger. We can learn new skills. We can do hard things. It is inspiring to me to see people who are younger coming up. And I also think I can inspire them, but I also feel like I can represent a group of women that maybe thought cycling was off limits because they were past a certain age, just as you were saying. And as a representative of a group of people who are in their 40s, in their 50s, we can do this. You can do this. And it doesn't matter if you are racing or you're riding or what, you can get on the bike, you can push yourself, and you can do the things that you didn't think you could do. And you can learn new skills. And you and I were in a conversation recently about, you were telling someone about when you're drawing, you should be holding a pen really softly. And you were, we were riding bikes. And I said, well, Lisa, that's exactly what I'm trying to explain to you in regards to your brake levers while descending down this <laughs> this gravel road. And it's really stuck in my head because I feel like I can teach women a lot about riding bikes, but so many of those lessons you already know. It's just about taking the lessons that you've 
learned in your life and applying them to a new discipline or a new creative path. And so what does it mean to, for me to be almost 44 and being a competitive elite off-road cyclist? I look at it as a way to show that other women can also be here. And I think about what my trajectory looks like moving forward. And I don't know if I was 25, I could say, okay, in five years, I'm going to be doing this at this race, or this is my goal. And to be realistic in five years, I probably am not going to be racing at the elite level. And so what does that look like? And what are my goals over the next five years? And how can I use this place that I'm in and the place that the sport is in to get more women into cycling and inspire women to get on bikes and to find community on bikes and to stay on bikes. It's not just here, learn to ride a bike. It's here, learn to ride a bike, to continue to develop your skills, continue to build community, and then take those lessons and influence the other people in your life and the other endeavors that you have and that you surround yourself with. The community in at least in gravel cycling is really pretty phenomenal. And that's how we know each other. And I have so many friends now that I've met either at gravel races or at the gravel camp you started. And so talk a little bit about what it's like or what it's meant to you to step out as a leader and a mentor in that space and to create opportunity for women to learn more about gravel cycling through your gravel camps and to build such a beautiful community and, and, and really why community is so important, especially in endurance athletics. Special Blend Gravel Camp was an idea sitting on my shoulder for a number of years. And post-pandemic, it came to life. And I thought, this will be a great opportunity to teach people skills. And then I thought, no, this is a great opportunity to bring a community of women together and inspire them to then inspire other people. And I look at Special Blend Gravel Camp as a catalyst for community. And the reason for me that community is so important, whether it be on the bike or off the bike, is that we can't do anything alone. Like you can't succeed in business alone. You can't stand on the podium of a, of a bike race alone. There's always a team of people who are lifting you up and supporting you along the way. And sometimes you take more energy and sometimes you give more energy, but that is what keeps us as humans moving forward and able to handle the hard things. And so just like on a bike, like there are going to be hard challenges. You know that, you accept that. And that's why you throw your leg over and start pedaling. And with community, you know, sometimes you're going to need them and sometimes they're going to need you and you engage in that community because at the end, you're stronger as a group. And so the outcome of Special Blend obviously is, yes, we are teaching skills, but I think more importantly, it's we are inspiring each other to be better humans. And the biggest remarkable, unexpected gift of bringing together this community of athletes through our camps is how much they inspire me. And inspiration flows both ways. And that is sort of a saying that I've just really held on to as of late, because whether it be sitting around the campfire telling stories or out on the road and seeing improvements, the energy of the campers and the coaches and the staff at camps is just a whirlwind. It's flowing in every direction. And you walk out of camp at the end of the week and you're just so filled up in all the right reasons. And I think it makes us all feel more empowered when we know 
that we are giving energy and we are, we are also receiving energy. And that's how communities can thrive. I love that. And I, I have attended both of the camps and it was kind of like a dream come true for me. I remember I did my first big, super hard five-day stage race, the Oregon Trail Gravel Grinder in 2021. And it was the only the second gravel event I had ever raced. And I had barely been on a gravel bike for more than maybe six months. And I remember sitting in my tent one night, it was actually the night before the last day of the race and saying to my teammate, Jody, who's also was my tent mate, you know, this is really so fun. Like, I love the community here. I love everyone I've met. I'm having a blast. I love being outside. I love the adventure. I would do this again next year if I could just find a camp for women where I could learn some new skills and get support because I really don't know what I'm doing. And gravel cycling is pretty technical. So, and this race was particularly technical. And then you decided, unbeknownst to me, to start a camp and a women's camp and asked me to be involved in the design of some of the branding. And that's actually how we got to know each other. And both the camp and my friendship with you ended up being life-changing for me. And I feel like that evening in the tent back in June of 2021, I put this thing out into the universe and then we were connected. And now I've participated in both camps and it's become a really special part of my cycling experience. And I know it has also been that for many other women. And let's be clear, camp is hard. Both camps, this last one was especially brutal. (laughs) I don't mean to scare people who might be considering it because like, it's also just such an incredible experience. The first day we climbed like 4,000 feet in the first 12 miles or something. I mean, I don't think I've ever done anything that hard even in all my races, but I did. And I did it with you and with a bunch of other people by my side who were also like, that was fucking hard. And, and yet we did it. And then we finished and we ate a huge meal together around the campfire and it was completely magical. So I appreciate that you do what you do, bringing women together to push themselves. And there is so much to learn when you're out there, not just, you know, from the coaches, but and not just technical stuff like, you know, here's how you hold onto your handlebars while you're descending, which, you know, all of that stuff is important, but also the encouragement that everyone gives each other. I had been struggling on the morning of the second day of the last camp, but I had this, you know, second wave in the afternoon. And I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but I was like pulling a bunch of people on a moderate climb, meaning I was the first and people were drafting off of me and we finish and Everyone was like, wow, Lisa, that was amazing. And that encouragement alone, you know, helped me get through the rest of the riding that we did. There's this like sense of community over competition, which is just so contagious. And there are so many moments like that where you feel supported and other people. And also, you know, it's clear that some people are really strong and some people are really struggling. Right. And the people who are struggling are managing their ego in one way, like avoiding super negative self-talk. And the people who are leading the ride are managing their egos in another way, maybe trying not to get overconfident. And there's a lot of, you know, managing how we feel about either feeling like a failure or feeling overconfident. And I find that when I'm on the bike, managing my ego has become a huge part of how I operate. 
And so much of how I work with my ego now is related to how my body is changing and my goals have to shift as well. I'm about to turn 55. And when you hit midlife, everything in your body changes as a woman, you know, so your metabolism changes, your estrogen levels go down and estrogen does so many things for your body, especially when you're an athlete. And estrogen is, you know, it's such an important hormone and it diminishes in menopause. So you have to deal with all of these things like your body can't repair itself in the same way, you lose lean muscle mass, your cortisol levels are high, all kinds of things happen. And your athletic performance diminishes. Like I cannot train or kind of like race or train in the same way that I did a couple of years ago because of the you know changes that my body is going through. I have been in menopause for a couple of years, but in the last year, all of these things have become a reality as an athlete. And I've had to confront my own ego, which means A, accepting the fact that my body is just going to be different from now on. Like there's no such thing as reverse aging. And B, it also means that I have to train differently, as I said, eat differently, all of the things that did never that I didn't ever really have to think about. And that I have to maybe have different expectations of myself, which is part of managing the ego, but also continue to set goals for myself that I can aspire to. Different new goals for myself as a woman who's 55. And I work every day to believe that I can, that even at my age, I can do something amazing, which is why you and I are working together to see how much I can accomplish. I've never really actually trained on a structured training plan before until now or done heavy lifting as part of my training. And I'm really super excited to see where that takes me. We both train and race at different levels, obviously, but we both bump into and up against our egos continuously. And so I just want to hear your thoughts on how you manage your own ego, because you've obviously had a lot of success, but then I know you've also, because I know you now and we're friends, you've had some hard experiences this year when you weren't performing at the level you wanted. And so what does managing your ego look like for you? And what have you found is helpful? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's become increasingly difficult because of the comparisons that we are, you know, social media, I think is the biggest example here where you're constantly being fed the shoulds. This is what you should look like. This is what you should be doing. This is what your results should look like. And I've, really think that the word should should not be used. We should not, it would be better to not use the word should because we shouldn't, right? Like you either are going to do it or you're not going to do it. And should implies that someone else is or some external force is saying, this is the thing that you should be doing. So in regards to managing my own ego, it's it's difficult and it's an ongoing process. Some of the things in regards to tips that I would share is when you're talking to yourself and you're having those mental conversations, like you were saying, you're having some bad thoughts on the first half of that second day of gravel camp. Like, would you say this to a friend? And why are you being cruel or evil to yourself? No one else would say that to you. And so trying to look at it from an outside perspective, and I have been practicing this a lot, stepping back, looking at the situation from above as an observer and then trying to guide myself into the directions and the thoughts that I would guide a friend or someone that I cared about. And giving, we talk about great, I mean, the word grace, I think is overused, but giving yourself grace and the space to figure out like, what is your why? Because oftentimes we are 
are having negative thoughts or engaging in negative talk because we are putting the expectations of others as the expectation to ourselves. And so if you can step back and say, why am I doing this? And what are the motivations? And is doing this going to bring me joy in the end? Or is this moving something that is important to me forward? Getting, I am a, I do create content in social media. I don't digest a lot of content and I'm very particular about who I follow and how much I engage because I, I believe that we see other people's social media as reality, but it is not. And then we are disappointed when our own reality does not match that expectation that, that we see other people. Or what we perceive they're doing or thinking or how they're living, right? Right. Because we look at a photo and it's a snapshot in time. It's not the whole picture of life or an existence. Or I also think that in community, back to the word community, we can, if we allow ourselves to be more vulnerable, we are able to understand other people also are vulnerable. And then it's easier to manage the ego because you recognize that you're not alone and that you can ask for support and help. And ego is not bad. I mean, ego, it has so many good things, but it's also important just to understand like we are not too often for me, I've wrapped my ego up in what other people think of me, what I think other people expect of me and this identity that I've created because of things that I do or I've accomplished. And I am not those accomplishments. I am not the things that I do. I am Serena. I happen to race bikes. I am Serena. I happen to put on a camp. I am Serena. I happen to be the wife of this person, the daughter of this always, but though that's not who I am. Those are just things that make up the tapestry of my existence. But if we put too much pressure on ourselves to live up to an external expectation, we will always fail because that expectation always changes. And so if you can find comfort and rooting in your why and who you are as a person, then it becomes easier to manage the expectations. And it's a constant journey for me. My other coach, who's my business coach, is all about the why. And I love, 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 love this idea of like knowing your why and using that as your driving force. She's like, sometimes you have to do things. And, you know, she's talking about life and business, you know, things that are painful or hard or boring or monotonous or fill in the blank. And we don't want to do those things. Those things are like things we maybe procrastinate about. And she's like, you have to like your reasons. You don't necessarily have to like the thing, like like doing your bookkeeping, for example, but you have to like your reasons for doing it. And so you bump up against something that you have to do or you feel you should do. She's always encouraging me to make a list of like why I do that thing and to stay focused on the reasons, the why, and not the task itself. And I feel like that's so important for so many things in life and not just riding a bike, right? We have to manage our egos in so many ways. And like I make work professionally, I make art um, for my job. And so much of what I have learned in that career has been helpful on the bike and vice versa, right? It's my responsibility to myself to create a career that is aligned with my values and my reasons and the things that I love. And I mean, clearly I have employees and I've run a business and I have customers and I'm responsible to them also, but I get to decide what I'm responsible for and how to show up every day. And having that sense of agency around my choices, like my whys, makes such a huge difference. 
And so when I find myself, which isn't actually very often because I've done a good job of, you know, like knowing my why for everything. But, you know, when I find myself complaining or feeling like resentful of having to get on the bike or having to endure something hard, I have to always go back to why am I here? And I also think when I'm experiencing my ego saying, why are you doing this? You're, you're never going to be as strong as so-and-so. Then I have to also examine, like, why am I here? Because I feel like the ego can be such a thief for joy. And ultimately, you know, I'm on the bike because I want to push myself to do the best that I can. And that's a personal reason. I also just like love the experience of riding a bike like you. I just, it makes me feel free. And now there might be some people who get on a bike and even ride the same races as I do that aren't interested in pushing themselves to go faster. They're just out there to have fun, to ride with other people, to enjoy the outdoors. They might even come in last every single time and they don't care. They are just there for the joy. That's their reason. That's their why. My why is to have fun plus see how fast I can go. And also I'm a Capricorn, so I'm a little competitive. But I'm recognizing more and more that when I am struggling with my ego, that coming back to my own journey and reasons feels really critical. Like I'll tell a little story. When I first started my art business, I was comparing myself all the time to other artists who I perceived as, you know, being at a similar place as I was and who I felt might be accomplishing more than I was. And so to help myself with that, I used to visualize myself at the helm of a boat with my eyes, you know, with blinders on, that I was focused on my own path and my own journey, and that I wasn't going to pay attention to what other people were doing around me. And that was such a helpful visualization for me. And I'm actually realizing as I'm talking about this to you right now, that I actually haven't used that visualization yet around my cycling journey. And that might be helpful for me you know, to keep my eyes focused on my own path, right? It's so easy, especially now with social media or even just being at a bike race and watching the people around you or, you know, in your professional career at a conference or even in your, you know, workspace where other people are speaking or accomplishing things, whatever it is in your world, we so naturally compare ourselves to other people. Yes. I think, and I think that the, I think sometimes, especially as Capricorns, we are competitive and that does help drive us. Yes, there are, as you said, there are upsides to having an ego and, you know, we're driven and I feel like, you know, there's this balance we have to maintain between being humble and being ambitious as driven people. <laughs> and that for women, especially, there's a certain amount of shame that comes up about being ambitious. like. I have this sweatshirt that says ambitious on it and I bought it kind of in an act of rebellion because I realized that I have a lot of shame about how ambitious I am to be better and to be, you know, to accomplish things. And, you know, clearly world domination is not my goal, but I want to do things and I want to do them well. And I have carried a lot of shame about that in my life, you know, that, that being ambitious somehow makes me not a humble person or too self-absorbed or, you know, whatever messages I got growing up. And I've had to separate those things. And that's been really important work for me. I was having that exact same conversation with those exact same words just this last week. 
about finding that balance between being ambitious and humble and self-confident, but not full of yourself. And, and it's difficult, I think, for women especially, because we can get often pigeonholed into, well, you're too bossy or you're too bitchy or blah, blah, blah. But yet we also need to be that way to accomplish the things that we set out to accomplish. And so it is a delicate balance. And I think the blinders, that analogy that you made, can be incredibly powerful. And I, I in our next call, Lisa, <laughs> in regards to, to writing, I would like to use that example because comparison can also lead us to undervalue our capabilities. And if you put blinders on and you're only doing your best and you're not judging yourself relative to anyone else, I think you often can overcome some barriers that before would be limiting, right? Like I'm not as strong as this person. Well, if you put your your blinders on, maybe you are. Maybe you will realize that every time you get dropped on that climb, it's not because you can't do it. It's because you have trained yourself to react in a certain way. Oh, this is hard. This person's going to be faster than me. So that's just the way it is. Well, how do we remove those barriers? How do we change those habitual reactions and, and neuropathways to set aside those barriers and really break through? Because we, we want homeostasis, but how do we break out of that? And how do we do the things that we didn't think we could do? And wearing those blinders and really just doing your best might help, yeah, kind of push to the next level. I want to talk a little bit about your trajectory from here. So in five years, you may not be a professional cyclist anymore. And as you look at your identity being bound up at being good at something, how you go into this next season of your life and like how you're thinking about making that transition, because you've got to be thinking about it, right? It's like, you have to stay present. You're still strong. You're still performing well, but you know, nature's going to do its thing. And you're six years away from being 50, things are going to start changing for you. Now, those changes aren't going to make it impossible for you to ride a bike or actually race and crush it in your age group, but your elite professional years are are numbered. So how do you think about your own relationship to your identity? Because I can see from the outside that you're starting to think about that and you're working on figuring that out. Like we were actually having a conversation earlier about you know, there being two hills in life and the first phase and the second phase or the first hill and the second hill. So tell us a little bit about that and how you're thinking about moving into this second phase of your life. Yeah. If we look at these phases as two curves and the first curve, as you go from being a youth to an adult and then continuing to improve, 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 well, there's a point where you're going to start declining. And if you keep pushing forward, thinking, I'm just going to work harder, the decline is going to happen. But if you can shift your focus and say, oh, I'm going to jump over onto this other curve. I'm going to use all of the knowledge and experience that I have gained in, in my life thus far and apply it so that I can help people who are on the upswing of the first curve. <laughs> so I guess in a way, it's like mentorship or information sharing. And I I didn't realize that Special Blend Gravel Camp would provide this, but I think it is going to continue to be a source of inspiration for me and also a way for me to continue to be vulnerable and share my experiences and bring other people into the fold and let the other women know that, yes, these changes in your body are going to happen. That doesn't mean that you need to accept mediocrity. 
you know, success might look different, but you don't need to give up. You don't need to throw in the towel. You, you just need to maybe change, like you were saying, change the way you eat or how you train or what your goals look like. And so I see my role in the cycling community and hopefully in a broader community as providing as an example of openness and transparency and integrity and vulnerability to keep these conversations going and to keep people inspired to chase the things that they want to do that make them happy, but maybe doing them in a little bit different way. It is really difficult to say, well, in five years, I won't be this person. I No, I take that back. I will be this person. I just maybe won't identify this part of my identity will be different. And letting go of that is something that I want to practice now. So it is less of a shock. And if we can prepare for things, if we can understand changes that are going to happen, understand how we are going to react to those things emotionally, and we can we can actually begin to process them before they're right in front of our faces, I think the outcome will be better. And obviously, this is really different when we talk about death, right? There are some cultures that talk about death as a natural part of life. They're not afraid of it. It's just, it's something that happens that is discussed. Whereas in Western culture, we don't talk about death at all. And then death is going to come and, you know, someone is sick or, or close to dying. And it's this shock of like, oh my God, we couldn't, we didn't believe this would ever happen. It's like, well, it's going to happen to all of us. And I think that's a similar situation going through perimenopause and menopause and postmenopause. Like that's going to happen to us. So we might as well educate ourselves and prepare ourselves for that. Or in a racing career, like there is a curve to everything and there's always a decline on the other side. So if you can be prepared for that and work to develop the tools that will be useful, then the transition will be easier. So. Yeah. I love that. Serena, thank you so much for spending this last hour with me and sharing all of your wisdom and experience. Thanks, Lisa. I really am grateful for you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.